everyone. Welcome to Lessons with Mike. Today is going to be a one fun, a fun, wonderful, exciting day. I'm here today with Benjamin. Hi. Um, I'm looking forward to having a thunderful day, personally. Yeah, I, I was hoping no one would notice that, but since you called me out, <laughs> I now have to leave it in there, and I can't edit it out now. It's stuck with me. <laughs> Uh, thunderful is the word of the year for 2024 we're gonna make it happen <laughs> yeah we'll see <laughs> so uh, benjamin's a paleontologist and we're and i've got him here today we're going to talk about what it's like to be at an excavation site some field work get into the really riveting details as he put it of uh, land ownership and other such things mm-hmm. there's a lot of fun legal technicalities you have to keep in mind um I would say that a very common question that I get, which is very reasonable, is how do you know where to dig? Mm-hmm. And when people ask that, they don't know they're getting into complex legal. Um, th- there's a lot of stuff that we have to keep in mind. And uh, hopefully I'll make this entertaining and not too boring. Yeah, yeah, I'm convinced it'll be a fun one. Uh, you just recently got back from a dig, right? Um, well, so not super recently. Um, Let's see. The last one that I did was about two months ago. I was up in the uh, north of Phoenix in the mountains looking at some Devonian rocks. Um, So those are a little bit north of uh, um, 382 million years old. So fairly up there as far as uh, as age goes for fossils. Um, But what what you may be referring to is um, just yesterday, the video that I shot while out in the field just uploaded. uh, so yeah, kind of throughout the year, I guess I'll mention at the top two things to keep in mind is a, I do field work exclusively within the United States at the moment. Um, so when I'm talking about, uh, law, I'm referring to the legal regime in the United States. And if you are, uh, listening from a different country, hello and welcome, but keep in mind that the situation may be very different. The other thing to keep in mind is that, again, if you're interested in seeing what a real excavation looks like, and I do not believe there's a lot of great examples um, out there, certainly not in film. Um, there are, I do have some colleagues that, that record stuff or even live stream from the field, so we're getting better documentation of what the real thing looks like. But if anything I'm talking about sounds just interesting to you, you can look up my name on YouTube or the Parent-Teacher Guide to Paleontology and... Um, my uh, my expedition donors get to see what I do the same day that I do it. They get that upload on the same day. Um, if you can't afford to contribute, that's totally fine. The videos go public on YouTube again after two months. So um, as of now, which is just the very end of 2023, um, you can see all 23 videos that I shot this year out in the field. And what's your YouTube channel? Um, it's just my name, Benjamin Moeller, M-O-H-L-E-R. Um, and hopefully, I guess my handle, since YouTube has handles now, is not Ben Moeller. So any of those combinations of things or Menifee Expedition is the big series that I do. Um, any of those things should hopefully bring that video up. And I've seen some of your stuff. It's really, I, th- I find it entertaining personally. So I hope if you're out there listening, you can go check this stuff out. It's, it's very interesting to see, you know, the up close, you know, day to day minutiae, I guess. Because you won't yeah. be seeing that in the movies. It'll just be like, ah, big dinosaur. But you don't really get to see all the details that go into it. Because it is a lot of stuff that goes into it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I guess a good place to start is where a lot of people's perspective on this stuff begins. Um, which would be the opening scene of Jurassic Park is kind of what most people think of, I would suppose. When they think of what an excavation looks like. Um, now... I had not seen Jurassic Park um, before going on my first excavation. So that was kind of something I saw after the fact. 
Um, and so like from first viewing, I'm like, that's not how that that's really not how this stuff works. And it's a fictionalized setting, obviously, but um, you're basically never going to find like that entire skeleton exposed to the surface that you're just very gently brushing off. Um, they're, they're not even cast fossils in that shot. It's actually like probably a, a mold of like plaster or foam or something. Um, yeah, in the real world, you're finding little fragments of stuff and you need to be able to identify. It's one thing to be able to identify like a femur of a big dinosaur. It's another to identify a tiny sliver of one just based off of the internal or like external texture based off of the weight compared to the rocks that you find it in. Um, the real thing looks looks very different, and uh, we almost never expose the whole thing in the field because fossils, as you might imagine, are very fragile, um, especially like bones. You know, coral is one thing. Um, stuff that's kind of crystallized is one thing. Bone can be very fragile when exposed to the surface, and fluctuations in like humidity and temperature can cause the precipitation or growth of like minerals and crystals inside the bone so it can deform once exposed to the surface. Um, so one of the first things we do is actually douse the fossils in glue. Um, oh. Yeah. Is that how you get them to stick together? No, I'm kidding. I know that's not true. <laughs> no, it, it actually is. Um, we oh, use wow. a cyanoacrylate. Um, so if you do like miniatures, if you're into like Warhammer, I think it's the same kind of glue. Maybe. Don't quote me on that. Um, we use this stuff called Butfar, and it's basically a mix of this really sketchy looking powder um, that I don't love to carry around in my car, but, you know, you have to to transport it to the field. <clears throat> um, and then you mix that with acetone, which is uh, basically nail polish remover, right? It's the same stuff. So you buy nail polish remover at like a hardware store and you get this uh, powder of Butfar and you mix it in varying quantities. You either get it a really thick glue so that's going to be a lot more powder to not as much acetone um, and that's really good for sticking bones together um, so if you have you know one bone that is in a bunch of pieces and you know they fit together um, and it's really difficult to demonstrate how you know they fit together if you don't have it physically in your hands um, a lot of this stuff is just kind of tactile um, knowledge it's something you only learn by physically handling a thing um, you know, the, the human body and mind has a lot of different ways of assessing information. And like that tactile info is not something I can demonstrate vocally, right? It's just something right. you, you put them together and you feel, oh, this is, this is where it belongs, right? It's a snug fit. Um, and so once you figure that out, you put a thicker glue kind of in between the two, stick them together. You hope that you didn't get any on your fingers because it will take off layers of skin. Um, I've tried wearing gloves while doing it and it almost makes it worse. Oh. Um, because you're, you're like, uh, if we're talking about like a, uh, it's not a polyvinyl, but like a latex glove, it doesn't give like the same amount of like, um, grip for me. So it starts, starts like slipping around. Um, yeah. So, so I just kind of roll the dice usually and just have my bare hands and hope I don't get any glue on my fingers or I don't glue my fingers together, which is even worse. Oh, that's, um, that's, that, has that happened to you before? Absolutely. Every year. Oh, absolutely. man, that sucks. Um, I've never got it in my mouth before. I've had a friend who tried opening a bottle, you know, between the teeth, and that 
backfired real bad. Um, fortunately, butvar is reversible. Um, you can just kind of douse it with a different chemical to undo the glue. So for example, if you glue two things together that you find out later don't belong together, it is reversible. Well, that's good. Yeah, so um, it's like, yeah. uh, so if you did drink some, I guess you'd have to drink another chemical to fix it. Yes, um, that's what they teach you in chemistry is to kind of mix, just keep on mixing stuff until you eventually neutralize it out. You'll either um, die or be fine. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. But what more can to, you ask for? Yeah, let's go back to something you said earlier. This uh, this is intriguing to me. Uh, so when you are going on these excavations, do you head and get an idea of what type of fossils you're going to be looking for? Study the skeletons beforehand to get a better idea of how to put them together. Yeah, that's a generally a smart thing to do. Um, and since we have kind of on and off field seasons. Again, right now it's winter in Arizona and we tend not to do a ton of field work when it's cold out. Um, we tend to focus that more on like spring and summer. So you have times of the year when uh, you may be in fact going back to back um, doing like tours through a certain area and you have a bunch of different formations that butt up next to each other. So you might do a couple weeks in the Triassic and then move around. Suddenly you're in the Cretaceous looking at a very different set of things. Um, so you'll have times of the year. Yeah. When you're focused, when you're outside and times of the year, when you're inside and you're looking at uh, published research and that's when you kind of familiarize with yourself with what could be out there um, and what you imagine could be out there, but hasn't been found yet. Um, uh, sorry. So you asked about, um, how we know what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, you kind of familiarize yourself ahead of time, um, based off of what's been published from other areas. If there's no publications from where you're going and you're just kind of winging it, um, doing like an exploratory, um, a cursory search of an area, um, there's not a whole lot of preparation you can do, right? You can look up stuff that maybe has been found from the same time period or from a similar area, um, but you're not going to know what it looks like until you're physically standing right in front of it. Um, no two fossils look the same. So when, you know, we have new people out in the field, you have to teach them what fossils actually look like because um, the stuff you find in museums is usually a replica. And in the field, it's going to be dirty. It's going to be usually distorted. You know, stuff gets kind of squished over time. Um, and over long periods of time, it can look very deformed. So you get two things that are the same, but look dramatically different. Um, and how do you know what it is if something like a physical characteristic can look, it can be so plastic, right? It can look so different. Um, and that's just a, a matter of experience. It's a matter of having seen you know, if I'm looking for a particular type of clam, um, you know, having picked up a hundred different fragments of that same thing beforehand can really help you identify it from a tiny little piece. Oh, yeah. Um, sure. yeah. yeah. I can, like, if you've been studying this stuff for years, you've got a more, you know, awareness of what you're looking for, whereas other people would just see it as a rock. Someone who's really familiar would be, you know, have a greater awareness. But let's go back to, you said, and I think a lot of people don't understand this, but uh, the fossils that you see on display in museums, those are typically not real because fossils are actually very fragile. Is that right? Yeah. So the, the I use a particular terminology um, just because I'm used to, um, in some context, fighting back against the idea that no fossils are real. Um, 
that's the kind of uh, background that I come from, unfortunately, um, is is there can be skepticism as to whether fossils are real at all, um, which is such a crazy thing to me. Once you again, you get the experience of looking for them and you realize that they're actually everywhere and not all that difficult to find that some people there's just this block where they don't even, you know, well, take that to the extreme. If no fossils are real, uh, shark teeth aren't real. Uh, if no fossils are real, then sea types of seashells, seashells. Well, yeah, if fossils aren't real, then how does your car work, right? Yeah. What is a fossil fuel? Do you, so you believe that like algae and, you know, like lycophytes that formed the coal seams that are all across, you know, the United States and Europe, those are real, but animals are not. Um, if you don't believe fossils are real, what is chalk, right? It's just fossils of small sea creatures um but yeah so the terminology that i use would be a replica or a cast is the the more technical term um for what you find in museums by and large what they put on display needs to be more durable than a real fossil so um the the tell and and it's different from museum to museum and a lot of them do try to put at least a few things on display that are original that are going to uh, stand up over time and not crumble apart. But if you're looking at a mounted skeleton, okay, you walk into your local museum, you see a T-Rex skeleton. Is it real? Almost certainly it is not. And this is the reason why they're extremely heavy. They're extremely fragile. They're one of a kind. Um, and putting it on display makes it a lot harder to study. Um, so for a variety of reasons, you take molds of your original fossils and then make, uh, it's either a resin or a plaster cast of that bone. Um, and then you have a set of uh, rep direct replicas of what you have fossils for. And then you can take pieces cast from other skeletons. Again, if we're talking about T-Rex, um, there's like 30 something skeletons of this animal. So we have a fairly complete understanding of its skeleton. Um, so if you found one that doesn't have a pair of arms, you can find a pair of arms from a similarly sized animal, take replicas of those and add it to your composite skeleton for display. Um, and when you physically assemble it, um, you can just, because it's not an original fossil, you can just drill directly into the structure to uh, put your metal scaffolding. Um, and that's the big difference. That's the tell. Um, as to whether what you're looking at on display is original fossil or a replica. If you don't see metal on the outside that's holding it in place, it's probably a replica because they drilled the metal rods like through the inside, right? right. Um, so you can you can see more of it, right? It's not obscured by metal. Um, and, you know, um, I like to plug what, you know, I, I like to plug replicas because they're really cool things to play around with. Um, they are much more lightweight and durable. And if you're in the market, if you're if you're one of these people who wants to have a fossil, I highly recommend you buy a replica and not an original um, for a variety of reasons. And I tr I'll try not to go down that particular tangent till we finish one of the other ones we started. Yeah. Um, never ending tangents on lessons with Mike, but the people love it. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm such an enabler uh, when it when it comes to that. I can legitimately be let down pretty much any any conversation um but what i was talking about right now was um uh fossils need to be taken care of um 
they need to be kept at kind of, cons again, consistent temperature, consistent low humidity, or um, you can get things like pyrite disease, where, um, min again, minerals that are inside of the bone start to precipitate outwards and break its structure. Um, so there are certain famous skeletons of dinosaurs like uh, the Acrocanthosaurus on display in North Carolina that has pyrite disease where the bones are actually breaking apart um, because it's much more humid in North Carolina than out in Oklahoma where the thing was buried. Um, so, you know, it's easier to take care of a replica. You just dust it off. No one's going to get mad if it breaks, um, which can definitely happen. Um, no scientific information is lost from that thing not being in a public collection. I think last time we talked about the importance of why public collections exist and why having stuff in it is important. Makes it accessible for everyone. And if there's only like a limited number, let's say there's just like, like you said about 30 T-Rex skeletons, that limits the amount of people that can even have knowledge or access to study what it looked like, how it might've behaved. But if you have replicas uh, that are able to be easily accessible by local museums and in more rural areas, especially that's opening up a whole lot of doors to people who otherwise would never have been able to see anything like that. My, my local museum for years had a very large uh, T-Rex display as soon as you walked in and mm -hmm. uh, it was replaced to do some repair work and it was replaced with a Quetzalcoatlus display. <clears throat> Oh, that's and cool. It was a lot of cool. Yeah, there was a there was a large mother, and it was feeding like a like a rat to uh, to two to two younger ones. Oh, that's fun. I'll have to send you a picture of it. It looked really cool. Yeah, uh, but that one was a lot newer. I could tell. Maybe I could tell just because I'm an adult now. But uh, that one looked a lot more plastic to me than the T Rex display they had. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Quetzalcoatlus is an interesting critter. It's been um, it's one of these things that was known. Um, going back to like the 1970s, but its original description was very light on details. Um, so there's a lot of it that was kind of up in the air and up to interpretation up until, uh, let's see, there was a big monograph that detailed like every single fossil known of Quetzalcoatlus um, from Big Bend is, is the area that these things come out of for the most part. Um, I think that only came out a couple of years ago. So it was a process that started in the 70s, you know, over 50 years ago and only recently um, has the full description and, and full imaging of all those pieces um, actually been published. So probably what you were looking at was a composite replica skeleton that had a lot more actual sculpturing in it. Um, and, and yeah, this stuff doesn't like the pieces that are put in um, that are not from direct fossil evidence are still incorporating fossils from, again, related species or you're mirroring left and right. So mm -hmm. if you're working with a vertebrate, we have bilateral symmetry. So if I somehow only had the left side of an animal, um, I have exactly 50% of its skeleton, the entire left side. Functionally, you have a complete skeleton because you can, especially now, 3D scan a fossil and digitally mirror it. So you know exactly what the right side the corresponding half would have looked like oh yeah you can figure it out because it's not like you know unless the animal had some sort of disease it's not like you would have one half looking significantly different than the other uh most uh most animals have a lot of uh, bilateral symmetry right we do we do know of a little bit of asymmetry now um one of my favorite dinosaur specimens is a styracosaurus um so one of the horned dinosaurs but it has um we call the epi uh, ossification. So those little horns that are 
uh, we'll call them nubbins to differentiate from like the brow horns and the nose horn. So Styracosaurus has a lot of these little spikes, these little nubbins around the perimeter of its frill. And uh, there are more than one specimen of this animal now that are asymmetrical in the number of uh, epioc uh, ossifications and the number of spikes on its frill. So there's like two in one position on one side where there's only one in that same position on the other. And that's a big problem for people who want to name new species of horned dinosaurs based off of characters like how many horns it has on this particular part of its frill, right? Because we now know that the same individual can have that kind of asymmetry. So there's, there's weird little exceptions to pretty much everything that we talk about here. That's very interesting. Give me just five. I'm trying to find that photo and I'm gonna send it to you real quick. Okay. Uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll get back to it. I think I should, uh, I think I should tell you that in my phone, your contact is saved as Mike comma lessons with. <laughs> uh, Lee, I should change my name as a publicity stunt. That's, <laughs> That's called branding. Yeah. Get it out there. Uh, when I first started, I was like really into this. I made like, I made, I ordered a thousand little uh, business cards with my face on them. Oh, I didn't really think too much about the visibility uh, because my logo is curved and you have to like twist and turn it to read it. But, uh. Okay. I, I'm not crazy. I know I took a photo of this thing. <laughs> okay. I'm going to be innovative and just go to the museum's Facebook page and find it. <laughs> I'm going to say hi to my cat. Hi, cat. She's too okay. quiet to catch on the mic, but she, she always does the... Oh. All right. Here it is. Let's see it. Oh, can you hear me? Yep. Weird. I lost you for a second. Still waiting on the, uh, I don't think the picture's sent yet. What was the uh, name of the museum? Oh. All right, here it is. I see it now. You still there? Hey, sorry about that. Yeah, I guess when I left the app to go find the Facebook photo, it decided to just stop working altogether. <laughs> oh, no. Well, uh, I got the pic now. Okay, perfect. What do you think? Um, really cool display. I don't think I've seen this mount before. Um, and yeah, I, I can see what you're talking about. Um, they're, they're really, really weird animals. Yeah, I like that Quetzalcoatlus because it comes from the... Uh, I'm really into like anthropology and native american history so i like how it comes from the aztec uh serpent god yeah 
it's it's definitely a lot more common now to utilize um, indigenous folklore and indigenous words in the naming of species. They still have to follow um, there's like a there's like a format. You have to treat the words like they're Latin, um, but it's become a lot more common now to to incorporate those words, which I think is really cool when appropriate. I, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I mean, uh, we can't have everything be the same uh, be the same random one guy's name, right? Got to got to diversify it a bit. Yeah, it gets pretty dull talking about. Every, yeah, it's just things across phyla named after all the same guy gets pretty dull. Like if every dinosaur was named Mike, that would be cool for like five seconds. Then it would get confusing. Impossible to differentiate. Yeah. But yeah, let's uh, let's keep this going. So one thing I really wanted to get into is like land ownership and disputes. So when you go to look for an excavation, um, I'm imagining that you can't excavate on federal land. Is this true? Um, Totally depends on. Well, I'll say this. You can't without permission. Mm -hmm. And permission is the, the key word here. Um, in the U.S., the landowner is also the owner of its mineral rights, which means you are the owner of its fossil rights as well. Um, so if you own a plot of land, and you probably already know this if you do out in Montana or Wyoming, Colorado, Nebraska, Kansas, um, New Mexico, any of these places that have vast tracts of fossil bearing layers, um, you own any of the fossils that you find on there. It's legally your property. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no limitations. If it's if it's literally your backyard, you own what's on it. Uh, same cannot be said of if you find like archaeological artifacts, but the bones are yours. Okay. Um, if we're and talking know, about, go ahead. I, I know most of that area out West is owned by the government, but you do, I imagine, run into cases where you have some private lands. Like what type of lands is easier for you to access and get permission for typically so um i would say just based off of the kind of work that i do it's a little bit easier to get onto um federal land like uh, land managed by the blm because it's very well documented and there's you know there's a a a point to go to right so when you get permission uh, when you apply for a permit to work on a particular section you need to provide information on you know um well so there's different types of permits there's a service collection permit which is what you apply for first that basically says i'm going to explore this area for fossils um i have permission in these particular marked areas so you have to specifically um, point to and and it's usually numbered and it's on a grid or whatever um you know i'm i'm taking this section and this section and this section i'm going to explore them um this permit gives me permission to collect anything that's physically sitting on top of the ground but if i find a skeleton in place that is where you go to the next type of permit which is a collection permit um, and that's where you have to provide specific gps coordinates of the area that you want to disturb Um, And the limits on how much land disturbance you can do is higher for an excavation permit as opposed to a service collection permit. So, for example, in the Menifee Formation, um, which is on BLM land, um, it's, you know, checkered with land owned by the Navajo Nation. And, of course, traditionally it it has belonged to the Navajo people. But in this case, the Bureau of Land Management controls the mineral rights. So we have to apply for permission to dig there from the BLM. So you have to, uh, when we find stuff with our service collection, you again, provide GPS coordinates. Um, 
we have restrictions on how we access the parcel in order to keep, again, our physical impact on the land to a minimum. Um, so we can use trails that have already been established by locals, but we cannot make our own trails by anything, you know, by any vehicle that has more than two wheels. Mm -hmm. So we can ride a, a bicycle, I guess, if you really, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend it because you'd fall in a sinkhole pretty quickly out there um, or you'd just tear apart your tires. But um, so we can take our vehicles on established trails and then we have to walk the rest of the way. Um, that can cause complications as far as getting excavated material out of the field because it tends to come out in really heavy jackets. So you have to physically pick it up and move it to the car and that can get really exciting. Um, so how long does this whole process take? Because let's say there's, I know there's a lot of, you know, weather issues. Uh, so let's say a fossil gets exposed you, you notice the fossil and you have to go apply for the permit. But by the time you get the permit, uh, the weather has changed. There's been a mudslide, a rock slide, something of that nature. The fossil is nowhere to be found anymore. Is that common? Um, fortunately, erosion tends to be fairly slow. Um, obviously, if you have a cave-in or a rock slide, <clears throat> it is what it is. Um, you can, I guess, you, you would have had the GPS uh, coordinate for that point so you can try to exhume it if it was really important um and uh again we do carry around glue with us so that's one of the first things you do when you find something even if we can't collect it necessarily that year we might have to come back one or two or even three years later um it's been glued and that seriously slows down the process of erosion so as long as you've glued something, um, and you don't need permission to put glue on a fossil, we don't need to tell the BLM about that. So it's you, we can make the call to preserve it at least before we talk about excavating it. Um, so the glue will kind of break down in the sun over time. Um, so we will actually, if we find something and glue it in place, usually we bury it too. Just put a little bit of foil or um, maybe a plastic bag if there's like float, if there's pieces of it that are broken off that are in the surrounding area, um, those things can definitely get washed away in a shorter time period. So pick those up, put it in a bag, put the bag on top of the glued thing that it's, that is dried. So you don't glue the bag to the fossil, um, and then, and then bury that. So you have the GPS coordinates. Um, it's actually, again, the, your, your erosion, rate is going to be highest when it's exposed to the surface. So burying it again can actually keep it safe for, um, you know, if you need to come back in 10 years, it'll pretty much look the same. Okay. Um, so there's, there's different little, there's different ways that we can preserve stuff in field over time. Um, the, the actual like permit application process that can take a really long time. Um, I did more than 23 field trips this year. Um, but I only recorded 23 because some of the places that I was going were purely um, exploratory places that I wouldn't be able to film excavating at for a couple of years. Right. If we if we mm -hmm. if I'm not saying we did, if we find something out there because um, uh, you need to not only um, uh, you need a P.I., and in that case, um, you usually need someone who has a PhD. For full disclosure, I am a 24-year-old who just got out of my bachelor's program a couple of years ago. I don't have that yet. Um, so I am working with other paleontologists who have those uh, credentials. And that's what a PhD does for you. Um, 
that's that's really all that it means. It enables you to make certain kinds of requests of the government, like I want to do this project as a principal investigator. I'm undersigning these are um, these scientists are people who can come with me. So I'm on the permits in in those cases listed on there. Um, in case I get stopped while out in the field and someone asks, like, do you have permission to go there? I can show my ID. I've got the permit with my name on it, um, all that kind of stuff. The other key element is that you need to have a repository. Um, so if you're collecting vertebrate material and uh, you, I guess I should have said this earlier, um, the, the rules are different for vertebrate versus invertebrate material. So if we're talking about an animal fossil, um, and it's on public land, absolutely do not touch it um, because you can get jail time for collecting a, a vertebrate fossil from public land without a permit. Um, if it's an invertebrate, if we're talking about a seashell or um, crinoids are really common, they're these small um, kind of asparagus looking uh, uh, sea lilies. They're actually mm -hmm. still around today, um, but a lot of them from prehistory are stemmed and they have these little uh, flowing arms. They're really cool. Um, you can find those by the by the fragments of crinoids by the millions in places like Mississippi. Um, here in Arizona, we have a ton of them alongside brachiopods, which are kind of like clams, but actually a different thing. So those do not have the same legal protections. You can pull to the side of the road if you're driving through like the mountains of northern Arizona around places like Payson. You see a cut in the road where they blasted through a mountain to make the road. Um, pull off to the side safely, um, go up to the hill, and there's a really decent chance, actually, that you find fossils there. And it's public land, and they're not vertebrates, so there are no restrictions on you collecting them. Those rules do not exist for invertebrates. Well, so if you're looking for, if you're looking for kind of an introduction, an, an, introdu uh, an introductory um, uh, field collection, some, something that you don't need, a, you certainly do not need a PhD to collect invertebrate fossils. Um, you don't need, as long as you know that you're on public land and not on someone's private ranch, um, there's no restrictions on it. They're easier to identify. Uh, they tend to be a lot more durable than a vertebrate fossil is. Uh, you don't really need to glue them together most of the time unless it's in really bad shape. Uh, so the rules are different depending on what type of fossil you're collecting. That's um, really interesting. Um, so I'm trying to think. Uh, trilobites, <laughs> do they have yeah. vertebrae? They do? Um, no, trilobites are, wait, <laughs> you're confusing me now. No, they're not. Um... I worded that very poorly. Uh, do trilobites count as vertebrates is the question. Um, sorry, when you, you, when you said that, because I'm talking about something that carries legal implications, suddenly I'm like, wait, what if they actually are? No, they're not. They're not. Vertebrates. Okay. Good, good. I was thinking about that. I was like, I was trying to like in my head picture what their uh, little skeletons looked like. I was like, is that a backbone or is that just like, nah, yeah. Um, yeah, the, 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 the trilobites got, um, I, I always get those backwards because I don't work with invertebrates nearly as much. Um, trilobite uh, means three lobes. And I always think of the three lobes as being the head, the, you know, the, the, the yeah. cephalon, the thorax. Yeah. And the, the pygidium, it's actually, um, they run lengthwise. So the middle lobe is, um, uh, what, I don't, I'm forgetting what that's called. But yeah, the middle lobe down the back is not a spine. Um, and then it's got the left and right plural lobes. 
Um, but yeah, so trilobites, for example, um, places like Utah and Nevada, um, uh, yeah, it's you can you can just collect those. This is um, fantastic news. I'm going to go search for trilobites immediately. You can, um, and in fact, there are places you can sign up. Um, you're obviously going to pay a little bit of an overhead for the convenience. Um, but there are uh, different like private companies that own like a parcel of land that produces a lot of fossils. Um, and yeah, you can pay for, you know, an afternoon just to go collect. And as long as you don't find anything extremely rare, you can usually keep what you find. Nice. Yeah, I know I've been to a few uh, there. I don't know how common they are in Arizona, but up in the mountains in North Carolina, uh, you see these very frequently little gym mine stations where they mm. claim to have, uh, you know, Oh, claim rare minerals, rare gems. It, it's probably all mostly fabricated, but a lot of times they do have fossils mixed in with the gems. Um, oh. I've only ever found snail shells, uh, those brachiopods that you had mentioned. I found a few of those. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing major, mostly just shells and things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're very common. Um, by far the most common types of fossils are invertebrates, um, which is why it's such a shame that I don't know as much about them as I should. Um, and yeah, just to just to underscore, I do think about not getting people in trouble. Um, and so I try to be as up on the legal classifications <laughs> of all these things and, and try very hard not to misspeak. It's one thing if I accidentally say the wrong fact about a dinosaur. It's another if I'm like, yeah, you can collect that um, because it, it can definitely come with um, serious penalties. I know people who have, who have been. Uh, sent to prison over stuff like that um, so even if it's just, not totally intentional so just for everyone listening legal disclaimer to absolve me and benjamin of any liability <laughs> uh we are not attorneys we are not licensed uh to do most really anything like uh so uh do your own research contact your own authorities if you have any questions before you go collect fossils <laughs> yeah my um i mean my opening recommendation for anyone who wants to get into collecting fossils is find a local museum as local as you can get um they will know the local laws they will help you out they know where the deposit the local deposits are and most likely they are also a repository so stuff that you find there can be kept at that local museum um, that's my recommendation um, and that that reminds me i wrote down a note of something i wanted to touch on um, earlier you were mentioning rural museums um i can't pronounce that word very well like most americans but um <laughs> words or not words museums that are outside of metropolitan areas um yeah, yeah like tend to tend to be um well they have a lot less funding um the displays they have are certainly going to be less impressive than the big uh mostly if we're talking in the united states east coast museums um like the american museum the smithsonian um but the irony and perhaps it's not irony, it's just the reality of the thing, is that those museums out in Colorado, in Montana, in Arizona, are much closer to the source of fossils than those East Coast institutions, especially if we're talking about vertebrates, because all the big dinosaur discoveries come from uh, the quote-unquote flyover states and the Western U.S. There's very, very, it's very rare to find dinosaur fossil material from the East Coast, for a lot of reasons, because it's a lot more forested. The rocks there are way too old for dinosaurs. So you find animals from the Cambrian and the Silurian. Dinosaurs weren't around back then. So it's just, it's, the rocks are too old. Um, 
the deposit, the exposure isn't correct. Whereas out West where it's very arid, um, you have massive erosion of these beds that hold fossils. Um, and because of the history of how this country came to be, um, it's, you know, the, the rush to find fossils out West comes from these very wealthy East coast institutions that went out, collected out in the West and sent those fossils back. And so, um, it's a much more recent phenomenon of fossils being found in places like the Southwest and places, um, in the Rocky mountains. We're talking on the, on the level of just maybe 50 years since a lot of these museums were first founded, even less than that. Um, so that fossils that are found here can actually stay here, can be studied here, can be displayed here. Um, and it's a game of catch up. And unfortunately, because money is so um, hard to come by in this field uh, for a variety of reasons, you're in competition kind of with these other institutions that have better pull. Um, it's, it's a very difficult, uh, there's a lot to consider and there's a lot of challenges in the science from the other side. Um, but if you're just trying to get into it, don't worry about stuff like that. Um, just, you know, be excited about having the chance to go outside, stretch your legs, breathe fresh air, all things that are just generally really good for you and go on what will probably be the coolest hike of your life. Um, because personally, um, being a paleontologist completely changed the way that I relate to the outdoors because anytime I'm outside, you know, that internal uh, pattern recognition scan is always on, always looking for anything out of the ordinary sitting on the ground, any rock exposures that look, you know, maybe, you know, that kind of looks like something that might have something goes walk over to it, kick it around, pick up a few things just to see. Um, most of the time, you know, especially if I'm like in the city here in Tucson, we don't have like urban fossil deposits. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it completely changed the way it makes me way more attentive to what's going on outside um, and really pay attention to um, everything that's around you. And it's it's just a really great exercise. Um, and uh, I mean, more more generally, just learning about what's local to the place that you live, um, get, getting kind of the, the geological context of the, the place you find yourself can give you a, a much deeper appreciation and relationship with the place that you live with the land that you're on, which is, which is always a really cool thing. And it makes you wonder like how many people uh, you see a fossil, how many people walked by it and didn't even, t didn't even notice because we get so busy caught up in things, especially as society becomes more modernized and more industrialized. We take, we take nature for granted, but eventually it'll get to a point unless things improve where we don't have access to the nature that we have today even what we have today is limited compared to what people had centuries right. past and yeah. going back to what you had said about uh keeping the finds localized to the area where they were found another thing i was thinking of is transporting these heavy multi-ton rocks and fossils is likely to cause damage i know of a few oh yeah a few cases in history where fossils have been lost uh in the transport from where they were dug up to the museum they were going to and I know you, really big rocks, you have to use dynamite in some cases to blow them up. So I don't know. Yeah. Still, I know historically that was done. I don't know. Really. Yeah, used to be the case. These <laughs> days we have um, uh, rock saws. Okay. We, we just kind of cut through it instead of blowing it up. 
Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right that again, back in the day, we're talking about um, just after the end of the Civil War, um, when kind of traveling out west got a lot safer. Um, uh, you know, people were going out there. It was honestly a lot of it was done by train. Um, so you you dig up your fossils in Laramie and you put it on a train to Cincinnati or to New York or to DC or wherever you're sending your stuff. And you hope that, hey, the train doesn't, well, it's a train. It's, you know, there's a lot of vibration and you need to pack things, keeping in mind that it's going to shake around. It's, um, it might be positioned next to another multi-ton um, block of rock that could potentially be rubbing up against it. So um, as you see in the expedition videos, um, we, it, we do kind of the same technique, um, although the materials are hopefully a little bit more um, durable that we use. Um, it's basically just a, a plaster of Paris cast, so this, or, or jacket is what we call it. So if you break your arm and you get a, a, a cast set to it, it's literally the same thing. It's, it's a rigid um, tool. It's a, co a covering, I guess, is a better way to put it. Um, where when we dig the thing out, you have to get below it and undercut it to a certain degree so, um, to turn it into a loaf um, that you can um, put, you know, you, sometimes tissue paper, sometimes foil. Your repository will have requirements on what they want stuff shipped to them, um, uh, protected by. Because um, some of them have to worry about mold, some of them have to worry about insects, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. um, so you cover that with a, a, a separation layer so that the fossil isn't getting plastered. But on top of that, you put strips of burlap um, soaked in plaster of Paris. We mix it on site. Um, I usually do it again by hand because there's a particular texture that I'm looking for to know that we've got the right ratio of water to plaster. Um, and it's harder to tell with gloves. So I always get plaster on my hands. Um, and then you're ripping out like the hair on your knuckles, trying to get the plaster off at the end. It's, it's, it's great fun. Um, yeah, back in the day, you would put it on a train. These days, we've got trucks for that. Um, but yeah, tr long distance transport of fossils it can be can be sketchy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's unfortunate to think about uh, how many have probably been lost because in that period of time, it was probably a good bit, honestly. Yeah. I try hard not to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I don't mean to give you any nightmares. Uh, let's do an exciting conclusion to wrap this up and to get people really excited about the future. Uh, it's Perfect. Here, uh, this episode will hopefully. Barring any unforeseen drunken binges, I will go on in the next few days. This will <laughs> hopefully be uploaded before 2024. So I'd like to go oh, cool. with uh, what your what your top fossil finds of the year were, if you'd like to share. Oh, um, gosh, well, there's things that I can share and things that I can't. Um, I should say that um, we we were actually talking about recording um, right after I got back from SVP. So. Um, the Society for Vertebrate Paleontology meets every year and we get to sit in on lectures put on by, um, you know, other researchers. It's, it's only a couple thousand people come to these. Paleontology is a very small field, um, but it's a great time to kind of catch up on what's been found across the world. And so when you ask that, the first few things that came to mind are things I can't talk about uh, because we have you know, a, a mutual agreement when you right, go to these yeah. things that you don't talk, you don't share trade secrets. Um, 
stuff that got published this year that's really cool. Um, obviously, Perusetus is something that a lot of people uh, heard about. It's a whale from Peru. Um, and a lot has been said on its supposed uh, weight and size. Um, that kind of stuff is speculative, and it wouldn't surprise me if those estimates were revised down with new material. But the bones themselves are fascinating because it's a, um, it is a whale, but it's a basilosauroid. It's something that um, is not, does not have modern descendants. These are the toothed whales um, that have these very distinct, I don't even know how to describe them. Um, they're almost shaped like a human hand if you kind of stick your fingers together, where um, there's, there's kind of many points on the crown. Um, and they tend to kind of have the slope that your hand does where the thumb and pinky are a little bit lower and there's a crest. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's one of those guys, a bacillosaurid. I, I don't remember at the top of my head if it's a bacillosaurid or a bacillosauroid. The difference matters to me, but not to anybody else. So I'll just put that asterisk out there. But the bones are just incredibly dense and thick. Um, and my understanding is that this is something you see in a lot of what we call secondarily aquatic uh, vertebrates, animals that have land living ancestry. Um, obviously, all animals come from aquatic ancestors. They go on to land, and then in a lot of cases, they go back into the water. And that's exactly what happens to, uh, to whales. Shortly after the extinction of the dinosaurs, their ancestors return to the water. Um, and those that don't, that branch becomes uh, the hoofed mammals, actually. Um, and the bacillosauroids, uh, yeah, they don't have any modern descendants. Um, the, their fossils, particularly Bacillosaurus and other animals from the Tethys in North Africa, um, an ancient sea that used to be that is no longer there. Um, they're often preserved with like small legs because they're not fully, um, they're a, what we call a transitionary whale, although I don't like the word transition when it comes to fossils because everything is a transition from one thing to the next. Um, point being, the fossils are really cool because the bones are super thick and you see it very often in animals that are returning to the sea, quote unquote, that in order to make themselves sink so they can actually live in the water column and not just buoyantly float on the surface, their bones get really, really dense. And then over time, they tend to become less extreme as the body develops other adaptations for, for ballasting, for allowing them to sink. Um, so that was a really cool guy. Oh, yeah. I remember when that first came out, I was like, oh, this thing is huge. And then, you know, the skepticism starts to seep in. And I, uh, we're going to have to wait a bit longer for some more information on that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very hard thing to explain. And since we're in the, the uh, final moments of the podcast, it's not something that I'm, it's not a can of worms that I'm going to open, yeah, but we'll, there's we'll kind of, the, we'll tease that for the next episode. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to coming back and talking more about this stuff, but there's kind of layers of proximity to truth is the way that I'm going to put it, where some types of facts are easier to determine than others. And when we're talking about reconstructing an entire animal it's full soft tissue mass based off of what we actually have which is mostly vertebra we don't have a skull of the animal yet um you know we're, we're talking about stuff that can be um not super precise it's a first data point um and as with any experiment your first few data points can be very misleading they can vary quite a bit and that's when 
um, you run more experiments and you add more and more points to your data set and you see where they start to cluster. Um, so assuming we can find more material of this animal, we will uh, revise those estimates and get more uh, accurate results. This first test out, again, it's, it's obviously a very big animal. Um, I don't think it's really necessary to try and make claims like this was the biggest animal, the heaviest animal, I think, was the term that they ran with. Um, a lot of the time that is that that blame is frankly on the shoulder of not science journalists necessarily who write stories about fossil releases, but it's on um, usually it's copy editors actually write article titles. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get kind of the, we, we say clickbait, but it's it's attention baiting, right? They want people to click on it. That's inherently what a copy editor is for, is to write a title that can get clicks. Um, and frankly, a lot of the misinformation that you see on paleontology, um, all of the misunderstandings and just kind of outright falsehoods that get circulated on places like Reddit, unfortunately, um, a lot of that comes from like articles written by science journalists who don't necessarily have a background in paleontology or copy editors whose whole job is to make grandiose claims that the scientists themselves don't necessarily, um, you know, make in the same way or they're much more muted or. Um, it's sensationalism. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. a way to get people to click on it. And I get it. They get, they gotta, they gotta pay for their uh, food somehow. But, yeah. So. Well, dude, this was a lot of fun. I hope everyone listening really enjoyed it. I always enjoy our conversation. I learn a whole lot, so I hope everyone listening learned a lot as well. Yeah, um, I could and do talk about this all damn day if I can. Um, so I'm looking forward to uh, coming back and talking about more. If you guys have questions that you want uh, Mike to ask me, obviously um, uh, write those down because otherwise we're just going to go off on wild tangents. You know, when I first did this podcast, after a few episodes, someone told me, you should really just call it Ramblings with Mike, because you just, <laughs> there's no direction. So my goal for next year, more direction. So everyone, please give me questions. Give me a focus. We'll make something really, really concrete happen. I pinky swear. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Ben. You have a good one. Bye now. Hey, you too.